This is the Delivery Space podcast. Whether you're interested in software delivery or business change, we have got some great content lined up for you. We launch into different areas of project delivery and bring you insights and experiences that you won't get from a book. Welcome, it's Nisha and Sharon. This is episode three on enterprise agility and not having the fear of failure. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Nisha. How are you this morning? Ah, very well. Now that I've got my coffee, I am good to go. Good stuff. We're joined today by by a really special guest. We have got Arthur McLaughlin. And Arthur is a scientist. He's a technologist and latterly a chief operating officer He started his career as a mathematical modeler. He then moved into enterprise sales and outsourcing, and he managed large pharmaceutical accounts for IBM before he moved into financial services and tech with JP Morgan. For the last two years, he's conducted interim and board advisory work for clients in enterprise tech, fintech, artificial intelligence, private equity and management consultancy. Arthur is an advocate for diversity inclusion, particularly in the tech industry, and for positive outcomes for children in the care system through sitting in as an independent adoption panel member for Adopt North East, finding forever families for children in care. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to have the chance to come and speak with you today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Welcome, what an Arthur. amazing bio you've got there, Arthur. Thank you. That's really kind. It's um, it uh, it wasn't a a bio that I planned. It seemed to happen almost in the blink of an eye. You know, one moment I was a PhD student, you know, finishing my my physics PhD, and then all of a sudden, thirty years have passed, and here I am <laughs> today. So, um, Looking back, it uh, it happened in the blink of an eye. I mean, literally 30 years passed in the blink of an eye. Wow. It's, it's incredible what you've uh, uh, done. So we're going to jump straight into it. And we always like to start off by kind of describing what we're talking about. So all our listeners have got a clear understanding. So if you wouldn't mind explaining, what exactly is enterprise agility? So I think everyone in the industry probably has their own opinion of of what that really is. But for me, um, it's the ability of an enterprise or or any business to react positively to um, a change of circumstances and particularly unexpected change. So an example of that, obviously, most recently is the pandemic. But another example could be the emergence of um, a new competitor. So BlackBerry and the emergence of the Apple iPhone. Um, which had a huge impact on BlackBerry. Um, Or it could be the loss of a major customer, um, particularly for companies that I refer to as 80-20 companies, where 80% of their earnings are coming from 20% of their customers. So the loss of a major customer when you have that profile is is unexpected and and a major impact. Oh, thank you. No, thank you for um, clearly defining that. And I think in those examples that you've given there, I think throughout the pandemic, we've definitely seen some significant changes. We've all seen how companies have had to adapt um, quickly. So, yeah, thank you very much for describing that. Welcome. Arthur, I have always been interested in like the 
even though I come from the delivery space, the business architecture that needs to be in place to make sure that the, the, the level of enterprise agility to respond to that change is fostered. It's a continuous process, as we've talked about um, before. In your view, where you've seen organizations really embrace the um, uh, agility and, and respond to those changes in the marketplace to make themselves, you know, have a better standing and better able to respond. What are those um, aspects of business architecture that are in place to help support that? What have you seen that really works? So I think there's there's a number of components that are required to make uh, to make it work. I think that the main one and the first one is leadership and in particular leadership awareness, leadership desire and leadership mindset. So by awareness, I mean the awareness of the leadership of the company to what's going on around them, um, because some some companies can be quite myopic um, in terms of desire. I think leadership really does have to have the desire for change and the desire for evolution. Um, and in some companies, it's it's not always there. Um, and I think the third piece with regard to leadership is is mindset. They they the leadership need to not have a fear of change and not have a fear of failure because you know failure is absolutely a necessary condition of trying something new. It's a necessary condition for learning and. Um, too often, I think there are leaderships in companies where they're too conservative and they're they're too frightened of change and failure, and that really constrains them from getting to, you know, an, an enterprise agility configuration in the company. And that's really interesting. You mentioned that because there is there's there is a sort of a conundrum here, isn't there? There is um, not having the fear of failure, but also not getting used to the success that you're having as well. Think of um, Eastman Kodak as an example, right? We've had generations in our family that used to work for them and to see that them as a company um, that kind of lose their market share over time and, and you know, what that actually meant for the workforce uh, was quite staggering. Yeah, no, I would agree. And, you know, likewise with, with companies like Black, BlackBerry, although BlackBerry did make an incredible recovery in the end. But I think I think one of the issues at a leadership level is um, when there is change and unexpected change, for example, the emergence of a new competitor or changing market conditions in the case of, of Kodak and you know, changing customer desires and customer demands. Mm. I think I think part of the problem with some companies is what I would refer to as corporate vanity. Um, you know, the, some companies think, yeah, we, we're the best, you know, we're we're the market leader. We're uh, and that leads them to think that they're unassailable, um, and they're not. Mm. And and that's a real issue. So I think, again, from a from a mindset perspective in leadership, I think it can be really dangerous for leadership to convey a message to the to the workforce of we're the best, because they don't really know that. Even if they're the market leader, they're not necessarily the best. You know, um, think of. Um, uh, large banks, for example, and the emergence of digital banks in the last few years, um, they have really eaten into the, the the market share of some of the larger banks, particularly in the consumer space. And you know, at the outset, some of those larger banks might have thought, "Oh, yeah, they're you know they're they're not they're not really going to be a problem." 
but yes, they are. So, so I think corporate vanity can can be a really limiting factor for some companies, and and you've raised a great example of it with Kodak. Yeah, no, thank you for that, Arthur. I, I, yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things, right, where you you know you you see a company in that position, or you're part of an organization where you see that 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 sentiment is prevailing. Is that it, though? For those organizations is there a way to turn back from that to uh, to kind of um you know uh remedy that mindset to put them in a better place and especially the leadership there is a way um because when they you know when they when they persist with their original strategy and they see their competitors really starting to eat into their market there's a clear sign there that the original strategy no longer applies and i think the best example for me is BlackBerry, um, you know, BlackBerry tried to cling on to, you know, the, the mobile phone market. That's where they'd made their name. Um, they'd made wonderful handsets. Everybody wanted them. Um, they had high volume sales, but slowly but surely, you know, Apple and then later Android started to eat into that. And eventually BlackBerry, BlackBerry did change. They did change their strategy from, from we'll tough it out to actually we're not in the mobile phone market anymore because mm. we can't compete with Apple and we can't compete with Google. And so they, they took a step back, particularly under John Chen. Um, they took a, took a step back, reanalyzed, you know, what their, what their actual magic was. Uh, it was security. They just presented security in the form of a handset previously. They realized they didn't have to present security in the form of a handset. They could present it in the form of software which is what they do today and they do it really well so i think they're they're a great example of stepping back taking a second look and recovering mm. and i guess you have to have a really kind of open mindset you do. in order to be able to do that do. because as you describe thinking mindset. that you're the best yeah. is uh, it's, it, it's incredibly constraining to to conclude that we're the best because at that point we're implicitly uh, implying that we're untouchable and and that's mm. never the case yeah. you know e even yeah. even the biggest company can be can be defeated in the end very true so arthur how can the senior leadership team and c suite from your perspective kind of create a culture that accepts failure as necessary so for i think they business growth the c suite need, need to lead by example um and I think where where C suite can go wrong is that they when they when they try to embed you know um, a new mindset and and you know a you know um, a lack of fear of of um, of failure and so forth they try to do it through a method um, for example I've seen a couple of companies who try to do culture change through method particularly a, a method called Drive. And I think with with colleagues and employees, you know, they're they're, they're not stupid. They they know that C suite are painting by numbers at that point, and um, and that does not generate trust. So I think I think the key for C suite is to be authentic, and that means don't follow a method or a framework, and and you know be absolutely transparent and candid. And in any organization where I've instituted change. I deliberately did not follow framework. I did not follow method, and I just followed, you know, what I thought was 
was the right goal for us as an organization, you know, whether it was a business unit or, or an entire company. I think um, if you're authentic and you build trust and you say what you mean and you mean what you say um, and you create a vision that people can, you know, can align to, you know, that it's something that people believe is actually achievable, even if ambitious, then I think that's the right way for C-suite to proceed. But definitely don't don't attempt to to institute culture change through through um, through framework because that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I guess you do definitely have to create that trust in order for people to actually be authentic and for the employees to buy into that authenticity. Yes, you do. And I think I think it involves every single interaction that you do with colleagues. Um, you know, no matter who it is. Um, and it's the same in, in the outside world. You know, um, it's it's the way that you behave towards other people. Um, I think one of the greatest skills that C-suite can demonstrate is, is listening, actually listening to their colleagues, whoever that might be, um, and, and demonstrate that they've not only listened, but that they've digested what's been said, and then demonstrate that you're reacting to what's been said. Um, for me, that's the way to you know to to demonstrate that I've I've really listened to to my colleagues' opinions, and that you know I trust those opinions because I've reacted to them. As they say, actions speak louder they than words. Absolutely, <laughs> do you know the old adage is true? <laughs> Talking of action. Arthur, what practical techniques can you share with our listeners um, that they can adopt um, as individuals who work in the delivery space to embrace um, that spirit of innovation, of experimentation, and overcoming the fear of getting things wrong and stifling the creativity that needs to be there to respond to those changes? What things can you... I've heard you say a few things already. What what can you so I th- recommend? I think um, for people in the delivery space and, and, you know, people in the delivery space, I think sometimes get handed um, projects that are maybe not, um, not as well thought through as they could be. Um, mm-hmm. Classic examples are um, sale, you know, sales-led companies where the sales force has sold something um, that is an extension of what the company's deliverables actually are um, and delivery are left to then you know plug that gap so i think for delivery people i think when they're starting any any uh, form of delivery project i think scenario planning and this also plays to the you know overcoming the fear of failure fear fear of failure comes from our personal vanity nobody wants to look stupid um, nobody in this world sets out to look stupid. And that's where, for me, that's where fear comes from in the corporate world. And I think um, one really key thing that delivery people can do is, uh, regardless of how a project has been packaged and, and, and given to them, scenario plan, scenario plan, and then scenario plan again. Um, look at what the worst thing is that can happen, um, because that that's that's where the fear is going to come from. Um, if you get to that worst outcome, that's the fearful piece. So what can you do? Having identified the worst thing that can happen, what can you do within the project to mitigate against that? Um, quite often, 
I see uh, I see projects that are all or nothing. Um, so they're immediately incredibly high risk. Um, and and I never advocate for projects like that. I think I think delivery should be incremental. And of course, the market um, and the industry, you know, has a strong belief in incremental delivery through minimum viable product, for example. Although I would argue minimum viable product should be minimum lovable product or minimum functional product. Um, but that's, I love that minimal yeah. lovable product, yeah. especially when you've got customer facing <laughs> products going out there. Hell, Abs- even yeah. when you've got internal products, yeah. right? Your customers, yeah. your internal customers should yeah. love them. Yeah, um, I, as a as a quick example, I signed up just just out of interest to a digital bank, and the sign up process was really really slick. But when I got the app on my Android phone, didn't actually do anything, <laughs> and. <laughs> I thought mm, this really is minimum minimum viable product, um, and mm. I, as a customer, I was incredibly disappointed. Um, and then when I had a technical issue with the app and I contacted Digital Bank, um, I found that their tech support was was just non-existent. Um, so they they they'd really gone the market, um, in my view, w- well below minimum functional product. And it definitely wasn't a lovable product, that's for sure. Um, so I think going back to the original question, I think scenario planning, um, look at all the possible outcomes, no matter how outlandish they might be, because our subconscious tends to convince us that, you know, that that the worst possible outcome's not actually going to happen. Um, a bit like a bit like countries believing that there isn't going to be a pandemic. And then there is. So mm-hmm. um so I think delivery, this real strength of delivery people is to do that, that planning, and if necessary, reconfigure that project um, so that we mitigate against those, those you know, worst outcomes, and then structure the project so that we deliver incrementally. It's going slow to go fast. Yeah. That's what you're really describing yeah. is that because yeah. uh, despite pressures that the exec might feel or delivery teams might feel, it is just having that intentional discipline to slow down, make sure that your market research is right, make sure that there is demand for what yes. you're actually producing based yes. on solid feedback, right? That's what you're saying. Yes. Um, and a tangible results. And then you can... Um, you know, see if your approach is right and, and be willing to test that. Yes. Right? Yes. And, you know, d- delivery people's voice is is as valid as anyone else's voice. You know, they're, mm. they're not second class citizens. Um, and so if they see something wrong, it's absolutely right and proper to say it. So the second point I would make around delivery is is almost over communicate, be transparent and over communicate, particularly if something's wrong. And and you know be persistent in the communication of that message because there will be those who don't want to hear that the project is behind or something is wrong or something unexpected has been uncovered. But you know the facts are the facts, and everybody has to live with the facts. And I'd much rather see you know a project uh, reconfigured partway through rather than just you know blindly plow on you know with hope. Um, that everything will work itself out because it won't. Mm. Yeah, so true. And like you said, um, it's it's kind of about using the facts and the data yeah. to determine how we 
change, yeah. adapt, pivot if we need to. There's no point in just blindly ploughing exactly. into a brick wall. Exactly. And, you know, I think, I think people in non-delivery functions possibly forget that, you know, delivery is the, the bridge between, you know, strategy and whiteboard and outcome with our customers. Um, you know, com- companies can't succeed unless they've got a really strong delivery function, delivering, mm-hmm. you know, the intended business value to our customers. And so, you know, d- delivery is absolutely the bridge between strategy and outcome. There's no doubt about that. And that's uh, such a powerful quote, Arthur. You're going to see that one. <laughs> We're going to take that one. It's uh, it's so Thank true. <laughs> I think we all we can all see, you know, the impacts that the global pandemic has had on you know many different types of organisations, and we just kind of wanted to talk about how do you think that the pandemic has impacted organisations in moving towards enterprise agility? I think um, I think it's been a great accelerator. I think the pandemic has produced more transformation towards enterprise agility than we'd seen in the previous, you know, five years, maybe the previous 10, because before the pandemic, you know, companies had a choice as to whether Mm -hmm. to transform. Um, They had a choice about the speed with which to do so, the extent to which to do so. Um, And, you know, that takes us back to culture again. Um, And some, you know, company cultures are more conservative than others. So I think, I think the pandemic was a great accelerator, but I think it also exposed um, a couple of things. It exposed um, companies that, that just weren't ready, um, you know, that didn't have a good enough grasp of technology to be able to, uh, you know, absorb the move to remote working. Some did, some didn't. Um, I think it also exposed some some conservative company cultures, particularly command and control cultures, um, where, you know, in, in, in that command and control culture, companies like to see everyone around. They like to have everyone in the office. And, you know, there's it's it's very subtle. There's lots of use cases here, um, you know, so uh, I'm not, for example, suggesting that, you know, the answer is hybrid. You know, now what's the question? Um, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's multiple use cases. So, you know, if, if you're a if you're a research science company and your scientists are solving really intractable problems, then then it, it's probably the case that they're more productive if, if they're in a you know a room or a lab with each other, you know, collaborating. So that that those type of companies will tend to have um, a reversion to more office or lab based activity. Whereas, you know, other companies um, who uh, execute large numbers of um, of mature processes. You know, maybe, for example, um, parts of banks. You know, where they're doing payment processing, that type of thing. Um, I think that can be done remotely. So I think um, I think the pandemic really did expose um, the the sort of wide array of com- company cultures that are out there. And what what for me will be really interesting will will be to see which companies. Um, want to quote unquote go back to normal mm. um, I think that will be very telling uh, but the companies that I think have have reacted best to the pandemic and who have conducted learning um, I think they will probably persist with some sort of hybrid model 
and companies yeah. who want to get back to normal um you know the command and control type companies they will i think try to encourage people to come back into the office but yeah it was it was a great accelerator and a great exposure of many things it also exposed some companies who are running at too too high a level of risk as well mm. yeah do you think there'll ever be a go back to normal no <laughs> yeah I, I'd, have to, I'd have to completely agree with you there i agree yeah i think i think you know all all measurement is is relative so when you know when we talk about normal there is some sort of measurement going on um and and all measurement is absolutely relative and so i think there's a new normal now and the new normal might be different for different companies and different people um you know, but it's we'll all find, I think, a new a new equilibrium in this world, mm. Um, mm. and I think we're probably all a lot more open to the unexpected now. You know mm. what what what's coming next? You know, I think even with the some of the clients that we work with in my day job, Arthur, um, they have embraced that notion of you know, necessity as mother of invention. <laughs> sorry if you were going to think about pre-pandemic if you're faced with a situation where you know you're looking at the possibility of getting everybody working remotely or as many people within your workforce as possible think about how much that program would a cost and how much people would size it as it would be a massive thing but when faced with the pandemic it was done super quickly yeah. It was, you know, so it, it, it really shows whether you're actually a, a small organization to a, a large corporate. Yes, you have a lot more considerations for large corporates. But when, when you have to move and react to something, you can actually do it. Yes. And I think people and companies pull out the most enormous resilience and resources when faced with adversity like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and we've seen that. And. Um, I think here in the UK in particular, you know, um, some companies have, you know, quietly been, I think, quite, quite heroic, particularly BT, you know, who run OpenReach and the broadband infrastructure of the UK. I mean, yeah. they, they absorbed that, that huge shift to remote working seemingly, you know, without even breaking sweat. I'm sure behind the mm. scenes, they peddled incredibly hard and many people, you know, worked through many long hours to to keep that infrastructure up but what an incredible job they did yeah yeah absolutely so other for smaller businesses let's just say with a few employees who don't have that you know that infrastructure that larger corporates do um what can they do to adopt agility in their business so i think again um it comes back to scenario planning uh, mm -hmm. and you know, I've worked in large businesses and small businesses, and particularly in smaller businesses, you know, they, they may not have access to, you know, tech skill. Um, so when they're faced with everybody starting to remote work, you know, what, what, what do they, what do they actually do to, you know, to get to agility? Because for them, it's, it's much more impactful than for a big company who have lots of tech skill. Um, so I think, I think they just have to take a step back, think about the art of the possible. Um, and I, I did witness this in a, in a smaller company. Um, it is a big shock, 
And I think they, um, to get to agility, I think scenario plan, I think they do need to um, embrace tech. Um, and for some small companies, that can be a very big energy curve to, to mm. overcome. Um, but there are, you know, good tech partners out there. There are good tech platforms out there. Um, small companies, for example, can sign up to platforms like Microsoft 365, uh, which you can either sign up to as an individual, which I have, or you can sign up to as, you know, as a, a small business. And mm -hmm. that's an incredibly powerful platform. And even if small company doesn't have tech skill, um, there is lots of literally free help out there to help companies on board to things like 365. Um, and I, I've had absolutely this experience and um, painful as it is, they can get to agility by, you know, embracing technology um, and they don't, you know, they don't need to hire programmers. They don't need to hire software developers. You know, you can onboard to, to a platform like that um, literally in the blink of an eye. Got some learning mm. to do, but mm. um, mm -hmm. but I would urge them to to you know but bite that bullet and do it. Yeah, and I guess the the other advantage is that they have got lesser routes um, to uh, you know a, a, sorry a quicker route through different layer uh, you know the, the two senior layers mm. of management mm. um, so that you, know, you can truly have that bottom-up and, yeah. and top-down approach acting out um, within smaller organizations where you, know, you you actually want to either pivot or yeah. establish a direction for growth. Yeah, and you know, smaller organizations have the benefit of they, they can get everyone into one call or, or you know, one room and say, okay, let's collectively yeah. decide what we're going to do, what's going to work for us. You know, um, but, you know, for, for some small companies, you know, if they're in the warehousing business, for example, it's a little bit harder, you know, because you, you can't do warehousing remotely. You've got to have somebody in the warehouse to dispatch stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's it's doable. It is doable. I think, again, you know, it's it's mindset. It's it's not being afraid of that change. It's biting that bullet and saying, OK, well, what is the worst thing that can happen? Well, we can give it a mm -hmm. try and it might not work. Well, we're still here after that, you know. Um, I think there are there are some some contexts though in, in in industry and business where you're trying something, you know, might be a little bit more impactful. E.g., if you're an airline pilot or something, trying to do something new in flight might not be a great idea. You know? <laughs> yeah, perhaps yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. perhaps do that in the simulator instead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so Arthur, um, when we're thinking about some of the smaller businesses, perhaps we've, we've discussed scenario planning and say the worst case scenario does come to fruition. How should they kind of view that? Should they take that as, you know, I've failed completely or should they kind of view that as learning? It's a great question. And I think, you know, certainly, certainly advocate people accepting the facts and accepting reality and sometimes sometimes if the worst case scenario does come to pass it, it could just be that we that we failed that we hadn't considered something that we should have done um and that you know that that 
you know could could be failure particularly if it's ended the company because um, that that is then that is then failure of the company but they're still they're still learning to get from that you know um what you know what did we overlook in our scenario planning did we react too late um were we too ambitious did we take too much of a risk so you know out of out of the you know out of the flames of of failure that there is still learning to be got but you know i would hope with with smaller businesses that that you know that they they don't and they never take such a risk that they actually risk ending the company um, but you know it does happen some companies do fail um sometimes you know through through you know weak management and sometimes through circumstances literally beyond their control you know we saw it in the pandemic um retailers in 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 city center premises for example um you know un- unbelievably difficult for them to keep going and you know the you know the maybe the the coffee shop owner who's run his or her coffee shop for 20 years in a city center somewhere you know many of them you know went to the wall and very sadly mm. yeah yeah very sad it was very sad to to see yeah. you know some of these businesses yeah go under but my hope is that you know they might be able to do something different or come back stronger yeah, in the future. Come, come back in a different in a different way you know reinvent themselves so i think in summary the answer to that question is sometimes failure genuinely is failure but um but a lot of the time it's actually it's actually learning and failure is a necessary condition to learn so um you know take that learning and and go forward um and and apply it and apply that learning next time around. I mean, that, that's almost like the entrepreneur cycle. You know, the entrepreneurs have many failed ventures before before they, you know, they they hit the venture that that you know that is a huge success. So all all that oh. learning's rolled up in that. Yeah. And the key thing is, they keep going. Keep going. They keep yeah. going. Yeah. They hold their head up high yeah. and they keep going because they yes. believe in their ideas, yes. right? Yes. yes. Yeah. And and one of the best leaders I've I've ever seen and ever worked with. Uh, I w- I was very young. I was in my early twenties at the time. We were in a very very difficult situation, and I remember him saying to me, "No matter what happens, keep going." Mm. And that's mm. one of the best bits of advice I think I've ever had. Mm. This is a really cool session. We're, I think, uh, Sharon, we're going to have to have a part two to talk about things further because we can do definitely deep dives in so many areas. Yeah. What are your takeaways, Sharon? Oh, so I think for me, it's um, the minimum lovable product. So that's a, a term <laughs> yeah. that I'm getting from Arthur here today. I got it from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I think, um, you know, it's really important. It's not just about creating something and getting out there quickly. It has to be functional and your end consumer, you know, has to love it really. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to take away. Arthur, how about you? What's your key For take? me, I mean, you, you really got me thinking when you, when you asked me to do this session. And I think for me, the whole topic of agility, and there's so much talk about agility in the industry, I think the key... Uh, for me and the thing that, that I would want people to take away is you know agility should not be done for the sake of agility it's all about delivering business value 
to your customers continuously as the market changes, as circumstance changes, and as your customers change. It's the ability to just continuously deliver business value, because if you do that, your business is going to thrive. Brilliant. Nisha, what's yours? Mine would be that it is critical for leadership to have that open mindset, um, that mindset that can uh, inspire those that are in the workforce that they effectively are responsible for um, to foster the, that spirit of innovation, to foster that openness. Um, and and I love that top-down and bottom-up approach as well, is to uh, include the voice of the delivery function within that organisation, um, you know, to establish the, the, uh, the direction of movement. So yeah, that, those would be mine. Thank you so much, Arthur. You're welcome. Thank you again for inviting me to, to come and talk and it's been, it's been great and thank you. Thank you, Arthur. We will definitely do a part two because you've unpacked so much value there and you've just been amazing and insightful with all your knowledge. Arthur, if people want to connect with you or, or follow you, how, sh- how are they best to do that? Um, just re- reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, that's absolutely my, my pre- preferred platform. So yeah, just just reach out and um, delighted to hear from people. I mean, really delighted. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody for watching and listening. And as always, make sure you look out for our next video. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.